Good morning. Good morning, everyone. It's Christmas Eve, and I feel like saying Merry Christmas, but I feel like maybe I'm jumping the gun there. Um, I hope you guys are having a wonderful lead up to Christmas. As you think about Christmas Day tomorrow, I wonder what your sense of anticipation is. How do you think you're going to respond to the day? How's the lead up to the day going for you? Our household is so excited. At Honey Bear's Playgroup, we uh, got a Christmas countdown paper chain. And each night, we cut off another chain to, to count down towards Christmas. And it's just the highlight, it's the highlight of our night. There is so much joy in the anticipation. That's our family at the moment. But others of us have seen enough Christmases that it started to lose its novelty. Our response is not maybe one of joy, but it's one of stress or of busyness of, or family dramas. Others of us, the joy is overshadowed by grief or of pain of what the day should be or of used to be or could be. There's so many mixed emotions when it comes to our feelings towards tomorrow, Christmas Day. Whatever our response towards Christmas Day is itself. The passage that we're going to be looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 2, the, the wise men, the story of the wise men, which we'll look at in a moment, it begs us to ask a deeper question. What is our response to the coming of Jesus? Not what is our response to this cute, wriggling, crying, pooping baby Jesus. I have an eight-week baby at home. And most importantly right now, my priority is just keep that baby alive. That's, that's all that really matters. I'm going to make sure she's warm, she's fed, she's clothed, she's loved, she's changed and cuddled. But that's the extent that that baby demands from me at the moment. But this baby being born isn't like any other baby. This baby being born is being born a king. And the story of, of the wise men is about the recognition of his kingship. And specifically, it's the recognition of his, uh, uh, the Gentile recognition of his kingship. Meaning that the Magi, Magi, the wise men who were not Jewish, are treating this Jewish baby, Jesus, as the king. So he's not just the king of the Jews, but he's the king of the whole world. And the appropriate response to the birth of this baby Jesus is, is unlike a response to any other baby being born. So this morning I want to explore what a good and proper response is to the coming of Jesus. Because every king has a kingdom, and the kingdom of Jesus is the world, and we are living in the realm of his kingdom. So that demands some kind of response from us. So let's get into the passage and we're going to see the different responses of the coming of King Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles, please open up to Matthew chapter 2 um, or you might be, want to get open your phones, uh, your phone app as well. Matthew chapter 2, we'll start from verse 1. And we'll read through to verse 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, 
During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where, is, where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, verse 6. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Let's look... Firstly, how the Magi respond. You know, in Christian tradition and in nativities, we often call them the three wise men, but Matthew doesn't give a specific number. We, we often say the three because there are three gifts, so it would be, make sense if there was three of them giving them the gifts. But Magi were a class of wise men who, who lived in Arabia or even Babylon. We don't know where they're from, we just know that they're from a distant land. We know that they are from the direction of, of, of eastwards of Jerusalem. And we get a picture of what the, this class of men is like in the book of Daniel, where Daniel himself is grouped in with these wise men. And they would advise the king. They, often they would be magicians or dream interpreters, but these wise men, they were also astrologers. And they concluded through observing the stars that the royal birth had occurred in Israel. And in the book of Daniel, these wise men are not particularly written about it in a positive light. They are not truly wise. Even though they have the name wise men, they're not truly wise because they do not look to God as a source of their wisdom. They simply look from within. But this time, it's different. These men, these wise men, are truly wise. They seek out and find the newborn king. They worship him and they give him gifts. See, the Magi were foreigners. They were outsiders, so out of place to welcome the coming of the king of the Jews. But God uses creation to make Jesus known and worshipped, even to those who are so far removed from him. They are culturally removed, geographically, even religiously. But God 
uses creation to make him known. Despite all these things, God orchestrates the universe to guide these wise men there. We need to realize maybe the the lengths that God went to to get them there. To plan this celestial configuration to happen at this exact point and this exact time is incredible. There's some historical evidence that Chinese astronomers observed a star that appeared around 5 BC, but we don't really know what exactly this star was. Whether it was a comet or some, some simulations of, uh, computer simulations have said it could have been Jupiter and Saturn making some kind of super bright light. It could have been a supernova, whatever it was. It was set at the foundation of the universe. I've been trying to appreciate the incomprehensible mind of God in the, in the moment of creation, thinking about this. Think about it. When he set the stars in place at the foundation of, at the beginning of time, he is, is moulding each planet, each star, each solar system, each galaxy he's made and placed with purpose and care. And, you know, and we know that science know, tells us that the universe is expanding and uh, there was this moment at the beginning of time where he decided that this star would be at the exact time and would be visible from the exact place it needed to be so that these outsiders would be guided to worship the king of the universe. From the beginning of time. The point is, is this, even the outsiders, if we, don't, if we don't fit in with the God crowd, even if we feel like we might stick out like a sore thumb in church, even if we are so removed or distant or far away from God, King Jesus has come for you. And God goes to extraordinary lengths to do so, to guide us there. And the Bible tells us that God is is using the universe to get through to you and to me. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God has, has given us guidance through his creation that we might seek him, find him, worship him, and live under his kingship. That's some extraordinary lengths God would go for you and for me. We can contrast the response of the Magi with the response of King Herod. Herod is not wanting to seek out this new king. He kind of just asks the Magi to go do it for him, do his dirty work. He doesn't want to, to sit under his kingship. Herod was threatened. Herod was a king who was installed by the Roman Empire to uh, rule over Judea. And uh, there's a few Herods in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospel. This is a different Herod that presides over Jesus' trial, um, but they have the same name. This, This Herod is, the Herod the Great, is so fearful. He decrees to kill all the boys under two. So that to try and, and, and make sure this new king doesn't compete with his power. To Herod, 
He himself is the king of the Jews. There is no space for another. So in his anxiety, anxiety, he clings to his power. He seeks to control and hold on to what is his. And I think the story of Herod reveals to us the human response to when our throne is threatened. There is a king already, and it's me. And if we read on Romans 1, uh, verse 21, it describes humanity's refusal of Jesus' kingship. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Herod did not glorify Jesus. He did not give thanks to him. He, he suppressed this truth. He could have been in the presence of, of God in flesh. The coming of the word that created all things and in all things hold together. He could have been in, in his presence, but his pride, in his pride, Herod thought he knew better. He exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? Some temporal power, some fleeting wealth. Herod did not acknowledge did not value or thank King Jesus. Instead, he, he belittled him, ignored him, and even tried to have him killed. This is the problem with, with Herod. He made little of that which has the greatest value in the universe, which is the glory of God. And how more tangible could the glory of God be than in the Christ child? whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But unfortunately, this isn't simply Herod's problem. It's our problem too. How often do we also not attribute to God what is rightfully his? We do not treat him as the one who is of the greatest value. We exchange the glory of God for something else that is lesser. And we put other things, other people, other desires, other identities in the place of God and treat them like God should be treated. And whatever is in that spot, in that throne of our lives, is what rules over us. But power and wealth is a ruthless king. Addiction is a cruel king. Anxiety is a brutal king. Your spouse and your family, it's, they make a terrible king. What or who competes for the throne of your life? Because a good and proper response is to the coming of Jesus, to have him assume the throne, to rule and reign over your life and my life. But we often already have a king. And those kings are illegitimate. They're unworthy and they need to be dethroned. And the installation of the rightful king needs to happen. Uh, there's a story of uh, King Henry VII. Uh, he became king in about the 1400s of the King of England. Uh, and there was, before he did, in the lead up to that, there was this series of civil wars to fight for the English throne. 
It was between the house of Lancaster, represented by a red rose, and the house of York, which was represented by a white rose. And Henry Tudor was the rightful king. He had claim to the throne through being a descendant of King Edward III. And so King Henry Tudor, his armies fought Richard III and they won the Battle of Bosworth Field in, in 1485. And King Henry was able to assume the throne, the English throne. King Henry was the rightful king. But a battle had to be won so that he could assume his throne. There is a battle that precedes the victory and the rule and reign. And for Jesus to reign over your life and my life, that battle, King Jesus has already fought and won. Not through a military conquest or a show of force, but through the sacrifice of his own life. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Romans 6.14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. King Jesus, by his grace, has fought the battle, defeated sin and death, and freed us from the tyrannical kings that rule over us. And so we need to embrace the good and perfect rule and reign of King Jesus in our lives. But what type of king is King Jesus? We see Herod on one hand, he's unhinged, he's threatened, and that's totally in contrast to, to baby King Jesus who's under the age of two. You know, I know what it's like to have a two-year-old at home. They're a bundle of joy, they're full of giggles, exploring the world with curiosity you have that on one hand, and then you have Herod. He's mad on power. So much so that while he's on his deathbed, he orders the execution of his own son because just to secure his own power and dying not long after. He is mad on power. What an absolute contrast. Meek and mild baby Jesus and King Herod. Mad on power. Matthew quotes the prophet Micah and Samuel in verse 6. He says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, people Israel. Jesus is a shepherd king. He's, he is a king who shepherds. He's not an insecure type of ruler. He's described as the shepherd of Israel. And the Bible tells us a, a lot about Jesus being a good shepherd. John 10, 14 and 15. I am, Jesus claims, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is a shepherd who knows his people. He's not some tyrannical king. He lays down his life for them. He goes after the one. Jesus is a shepherd who is present, who protects, who pursues and provides for his people. He really is a good king. 
And it makes no sense to be resistant to this kind of rule and reign because it's good for us. There was a time in my life when I was younger when, when I didn't have kids where sleep was just an optional extra for me. It was like if you had nothing better to do, then you caught up on sleep. But I've got other things to do. You know, the record for the longest time awake is held by a 17-year-old, of course. In 1963, Randy Gardner stayed awake for, get this, 11 days and 24 minutes. To no surprise, he later suffered from insomnia for years. When you're sleep-deprived or haven't got enough sleep, it's not long until you notice that you have trouble concentrating, that you have more a tendency to be anxious or emotional. You might even get sick or unwell more often. I learned that sleep is a really important part to good health. And it makes no sense to be resistant to the fact I need sleep. Sometimes we're not always in control of how much sleep you get. Uh, With three kids now, I have a new appreciation for sleep, that's for sure. Sleep is good for us. It's necessary and it needs to be embraced. It makes no sense to reject sleep. And we need to embrace Jesus' kingship even more so. It's like saying, ah, oxygen, it's not for me, you know. I like it, but I'm just not ready for that commitment to have oxygen in my lungs. It's just not for me. It's like that. It makes no sense to be resistant to oxygen in your lungs. It makes no sense to be resistant to the rule and reign of the Good Shepherd in our lives. I want to I close with this. If you embrace, will you embrace King Jesus this Christmas? Jesus told his disciples... This is how you are to pray in Matthew 6. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what would it look like for you this morning to pray that prayer? What does it look like for the will of King Jesus to be done in your life today? Is there some resistance that needs to be relinquished? Are there Icons or idols that need to be dethroned? Are there desires that need to be surrendered? What would it look like for you today to pray that prayer with your whole heart? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray. King Jesus, you are the king of the whole world. You are only, you are worthy. And we, we want to submit to your good and right and perfect kingship. Lord, we know that you are a good shepherd who is present, who protects, who pursues us and provides for his people. May we have a greater understanding of these attributes of yours. May we trust you and lean into you that you really are the good king. If there's areas of our hearts that are resistant to your rule and reign, may we open them up to you.
Lord, help us. It is only in your strength and by your grace and through the victory that you have won on the cross for us that we can pray with our whole heart, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.